You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our blessed Father, we are here again before your word because it is with great expectation that we come to the pages of Scripture to hear your voice and to hear you speak to your people. We ask that you would do that today. We are unable to discern spiritual things because our natural man does not do that. We cannot understand your word apart from the illuminating and empowering work of the Spirit of God. And so we ask that our hearts would be still this morning and our minds might be active, that we may receive from you spiritual truth Be challenged from your word and grant us the eyes to see wonderful things in it. This morning we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you need to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 28. It's been a month since we've been in the text of the book of Acts 28. Hard to believe, but we had two Sundays that we were out looking at miracles and then a Sunday that we were out for Resurrection Sunday looking at John chapter 5. So it's been four weeks since we've been in Acts 28. When we left Paul, he was on the island of Malta. Acts 27 and 28 are all about a trip that Paul takes after his trials in Caesarea to the city of Rome. He's appealed to Caesar, and so he has an appointment before the emperor. Acts 27 tells us about a month of Paul's life in which he was on board a ship and in a storm and in a uh, shipwreck and shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Then in chapter 28, we find Paul on the island of Malta for a period of time, and two miraculous things happened. He was bitten by a snake, a viper. Don't mix those two words up. And he, then after that, he was healed, or he healed people on the island. He healed Publius's father-in-law of dysentery. And then after that, he began to heal everybody that was on the island that was coming to him with various diseases, and he was healing them all. And Paul, because he was such a gracious individual and because of what he did for the people on the island of Malta, he really endeared himself to them. So when it came time to leave, verse 10 of Acts chapter 28, verse 10 says, They honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. You remember, prisoners in those days were not like prisoners in our days. Prisoners in our day get a free taxpayer-supplied ride to anywhere that they're going, and and they get changes of clothes and three square meals a day and a, a bed to sleep on and all of that good stuff. Prisoners in Paul's day, they didn't get any of that. If they ate anything, it was because somebody supplied that for them to eat, and somebody would visit them in the prison and supply things for them to eat. And if they nobody visited them in prison as a prisoner and supplied anything for them to eat, they didn't eat. And it was that way with food, it was that way with water, it was that way with clothing... And so Paul is still under Roman guard. He is still chained, as it were, to Julius, the Nero's bodyguard, the centurion of the Augustan cohort. He's still chained to him and on his way to Rome. And so as they're leaving the island of Malta, the people, in response to Paul's graciousness, poured out grace on him and supplied him with everything that they needed for this last leg of the journey of Rome. So we're going to be looking in verses 11 through 16 at this final leg of Paul's trip from the island of Malta to the city of Rome. So let's read it together, verses 11 through 16, and then I'll tell you how we're going to divide this up. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered on the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petili. There we've, I've been working all week on pronouncing that right, by the way. 
Verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Thus they come to the city of Rome. You may be asking yourself the same thing I was asking myself at the beginning of last week. What are you going to do with those verses? Right? A travel itinerary from the island of Malta to the city of Rome. Well, what is interesting about these verses, verses 11 through 16, is how much they contrast with chapter 27. You read the first half of Paul's, not even the first half, but the first big chunk of Paul's journey, and what do you see? Danger, destruction, disaster, um, potential death, potential loss of life, potential, actually the actual loss of all the cargo and the ship and all of the danger that surrounded it, snake bites and all of this stuff, cold, wet, misery for that whole month. And then you get to this part where he goes from Malta to Rome and it's safety and security and, and blessings, really. And so what I've, what I've done is I've noticed four distinct blessings in the life of Paul or four distinct blessings that Paul received in this last leg of the journey, so that's what we're going to organize our thoughts around, are these four ways in which God blessed this faithful servant. The last half of the journey, the last part of this journey, was such a blessing to Paul. So much better than Acts 27. You read Acts 27, you think, man, if all the trip is like that, what does he have to look forward to? Then you get to Acts 28, and you, and you kind of breathe a sigh of relief and think, man, thank goodness, thank the Lord. Goodness has nothing to do with it. Thank the Lord that Paul was blessed the way he was and that the last part of this trip went the way it did. And there's four distinct blessings, and so we'll notice them as we go through. The first one is that Paul was granted safe sailing. first way that the Lord blessed Paul was he granted him safe sailing. Look at verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. An Alexandrian ship was a grain freighter, just like the grain freighter that had taken Paul the last part of that journey in chapter 27 that was broken up by the waves. This was a, a freighter that was under the employment of Rome. So Julius, as a Roman centurion, would have been able to sort of commandeer the ship and bring the prisoners that were coming with Paul on board the ship for this last leg of the journey to Rome. So they board an Alexandrian ship, a grain freighter. And Luke says it was a, a grain freighter that had wintered at the island and it had spent three months there, just like Paul and Aristarchus and Luke and Julius and everybody else that was traveling with them. They had wintered on the island. Now the three months refers to the amount of time there was between the shipwreck and Paul leaving the island. Back in chapter 27, we saw that this journey took place after the fast, which was in the day of atonement, which was on the day of atonement in the month of October. So that last month landed them on the island of Malta, somewhere at the beginning of November, the month of November, maybe middle of the month of November. So for the month of November, December, and January, they stay on the island. So when they leave the island of Malta after three months, it's now the spring of 8061. If you want to mark that down in the margin of your Bible, we're talking about early February of 61 AD when Paul finally leaves the island of Malta. The ship had wintered there, spent the winter there. They got on board the ship and they sailed off to Regium. Now there's a little detail in the text and this is one of those quirky things that I have no idea why the Spirit of God put this in there or why Luke included it in there. I don't know what was going on, but he says it was an Alexandrian ship that had the twin brothers as their figurehead. The twin brothers refers to the twin sons of Zeus in Greek mythology, Pollux and Castor. And they were considered patron deities of the sea. So sailors revered these gods and felt that these gods would protect them. So this is an Alexandrian ship that probably on the front of the ship had some carvings of some sort of Pollux and Castor, maybe a, a picture painted on the mainsail of the ship. And they believed that under, uh, sailing under that figurehead of Pollux and Castor, 
that they would be protected from anything that went on at the sea. I have no idea why Luke included that. Why does he tell us exactly which Alexandrian ship they sailed on? I have no idea. I have no idea what the significance of that detail is at all, other than it does indicate to us that this is an eyewitness testimony. Luke actually indicates the ship that took them. The rest of the journey seems rather uneventful. Do you notice that? They sail a couple days. They, they put in at Syracuse, which is on the eastern side of the island of Sicily. The little map that I've included in your notes. Did you get the map? Okay, good. I was out of the office on Thursday, so I wasn't sure if, if that made its way. I double-checked that. Otherwise, I get all these blank stares looking back at me like, map, where's the map? The map that I included in your, you can see where they're sailing from the island of Malta, which just barely appears on your map. There is a little tiny speck, and you have to get your bifocals on to see it. They sail north up to the island of Syracuse, or the, the island of Sicily, and on the eastern shore is a little port of Syracuse. Look what Luke says in verse 12. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Don't know why they stayed there for three days. Could be unloading and loading cargo. It might be that the weather had turned and gotten sort of sour because beginning in the month of February, that's when the shipping lanes opened up, but the weather is still pretty iffy. So it may be that they waited there for three days until the weather to clear up a little bit. They left Syracuse, sailed around, and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petili. Now, Petili was a little main port on the, in the Bay of Naples. As Paul's traveling into Petili, he would have looked off to his right and he would have seen the city of Neapolis on the island on the coast of Italy there. Um, it's a city of about 100,000 people. It was Rome's main port. Rome, the city of Rome, is about 150 miles inland. So they have, still have 150 miles to walk from putting in at, at port at Petili. But as Paul was traveling past on his way to Petili, let me just give you sort of a geographical note, since after last week you might think that I don't know anything about geography. Let me give you a little geographical note and a little historical note. As they're traveling into this port of Petili, to the right, Paul would have been able to look and to see Mount Vesuvius from the ship. Mount Vesuvius, that sounds familiar to you, right? Because at the base of that was a little city called Pompeii. Paul's sailing past that and looking inland and seeing that about 18 years before Pompeii was actually buried in ashes in uh, 79 A.D. So Paul's there less than, less than 20 years before Pompeii is destroyed. Paul's sailing past it. A little historical context for history buffs. They get into the city of Petili, and Paul says that they stayed there, and they arrived at the city of Petili safe and sound. You notice how different that is from the, the sea voyage of Acts 27? One of the kids came up to me before. He said, what, what, does Paul get back on board a ship? Is, is there going to be wind? And I said, you're just going to have to stay tuned for the message and find out what happens. He does actually get on board the ship, but it's nothing contrary. It's just this blessing of safe travel. By the way, do you ever thank God for safe travel? Is it only after chapters like 27 where you, you narrowly miss a car and your, your car skids to a stop off the side of the road or something like that? Or do you thank God? You know what you did this morning? You took your entire family and you piled into a piece of metal and you accelerated that piece of metal up to almost 60 miles an hour and hurled it within inches of other vehicles coming in the opposite direction at equal speed and you did this and you passed person after person after person, all of whom or any of whom could have been crazy, suicidal, demented, half-blind, um, unable to drive because they're too old or too crippled or something like that or, or just distracted or talking on a cell phone and you all arrived here safe and sound this morning. And you do this every week, by the way, don't you? Do you ever thank God for that? I'm amazed. I was thinking back on this last week. I'm amazed at how often I get in a vehicle I get out on the roads, I travel a long distance, and I arrive somewhere, and I never thank God for the fact that I didn't have to go through an Acts 27 experience, some shipwreck or some major catastrophe. 
That is a blessing from God. And after Acts 27, the Lord just granted Paul this completely uneventful, safe journey all the way into Petili. The second blessing that Paul enjoyed was friendly fellowship. Look at verse 13. From there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. A day later they run into Petili. Verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days and thus we came to Rome. They got into Petili and they stayed there seven days. I don't know why they stayed there seven days. Maybe Julius, the centurion who's guarding Paul, had some business to take care of in the city. Whatever it was, he decided to stay there for a week before they took this last leg of the journey into Rome. It might be that they were, it was raining and they were waiting for weather to clear up, whatever. But as Paul got into the city of Petili, he found some brethren there. There was a church that existed there and there were some brothers and sisters in Christ that were meeting. Imagine the blessing as a believer of showing up at your church thinking that you, you know what's going to happen. You gather together as God's people and, and who's dropped into your city? Quite unexpected. There's no indication that these people expected a special visitor for this Lord's Day service. But if Paul was there a week, he would have been with the church for a Lord's Day service, a Sunday morning worship service. Imagine the blessing of coming in here and walking in and having Paul there for a Sunday morning worship service. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would just be phenomenal. And to have a surprise like that. Paul drops in and the church, when he finds the church, they say, oh, you're staying here seven days? We'll open up our hearts. We'll open up our homes to you. We'll provide for Dr. Luke, Aristarchus, Julius, and Paul. You guys can stay with us for seven days. You know what that's called? It's called hospitality. Friends, do you know how much of a lost art, a lost grace, hospitality is in the church today? It is completely lost. It's almost dying. I talk to the missionaries that we support as they come back on furlough, and sitting down over a meal and talking with them, you know what I find out? I ask them, what... What are the churches like as you travel around the country? It doesn't matter northwest, southwest, midwest, northeast, southeast. doesn't matter what part of the country they go to, what church they go to. You know what they find by and large? The churches have a hard time finding people to put the missionaries up for the night. And they will rent them hotel rooms or motel rooms. They will allow them to stay at the church. If the church happens to have a shower, they'll haul in some mattresses and the missionaries can stay at the church for the night or for a couple nights, however long they're in town. That's what they find. We have missionary families who actually travel with a motorhome. You know why? Because most of the churches that they visit don't show them any hospitality. You know how pathetic that is? That is just a sad indictment of the church across the country. We have lost the grace of hospitality. You look back in the New Testament, you look back in the book of Acts, and what do you find? The minute somebody showed up in town, hearts and homes were opened up and Christians were allowed to come in and stay. You didn't want to stay at an inn or a hotel in those days. Because those were brothels. Those were sin holes. Those were the last place you would, as a Christian would want to stay. And so the Christians opened up their hearts and their homes to people. We are commanded in Scripture to exercise hospitality. Not just those of you who have the spiritual gift. Some of you have the spiritual gift of hospitality. That's what you do. You love it. You open up your home. Having an open home to you is just as natural as breathing. Others of you struggle with hospitality because you think that you have a small home or you think that you can't provide a nice meal or or your bed's uncomfortable or, or whatever. Or maybe some of you here just don't even practice hospitality at all. First Peter chapter 4 says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Without complaint. And see, that's the hard part. Being hospitable is easy. Being hospitable without complaint, that's the difficult part. Because people come in with their muddy shoes and people come in with their kids crayoning on your wall and all of that good stuff. And it, it's, we tend to complain about it. Romans chapter 12, we are to rejoice in hope, to persevere in tribulation, be devoted to prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. It's required of an elder that he be one who is hospitable and exercises hospitality. 
It was required of the widows who were put on the church's support roster to, get, to receive support from the church that they show hospitality to strangers. Do you remember what happened in Acts 16 when the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken by Paul? First convert in Europe, what did she do? She opened up her home to bring in Paul and Silas and all who were traveling with them, and she put them up. Because the first sign of an open heart is an open home. This was natural. The Philippian jailer, after he got saved, he took Paul and Silas out of the prison, brought them into his home and set food before him and exercised hospitality. Friends, it's a lost grace in our day. It requires extra work. It requires preparation. I understand that. It requires time taken away from you and your family, things that you would rather be doing. I understand that. You have to clean the house. Yeah, you have to prepare a meal. And people leave. You've got to clean up afterwards. And you really have to organize your whole day around doing that. Some of you are able to do it on the last minute, and, and you have that gift and that ability. And I said, just go at it. Do it all the more. It is something that is difficult. It is something that is taxing. But every element of service is difficult, and every piece of of serving the Lord's saints is taxing. Hospitality demonstrates that your house doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. Hospitality demonstrates that your beds don't belong to you. Your food's not yours. Everything that you have is the Lord's and to be used to bless Him and to bless His people. That's the biblical perspective of material possessions. Hospitality does that. Hospitality shows that you're willing to serve other people. That you're willing to lay your life down for other people. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? But God commands us to do it. And you know how much of a blessing it is to the individual who shows hospitality? You think it's just blessing somebody else. But if you've never practiced habitual, sacrificial, loving, regular hospitality, you have no idea the blessing that you miss out on. I think that this church is one of the most exceptional churches when it comes to hospitality. From what I've seen, from what I hear, from what I watch going on, this is above the norm, especially when I hear about what happens elsewhere. This church is exceptional. When the missionaries come here, they don't have to, we don't rent them hotel rooms. You know, we have families actually fight over who gets to host the missionary family. I think that's great. There's nothing like three five minute rounds in an octagon to determine who gets to host the missionary family. I think that's great stuff. I, I want to see people fight over who gets to have the missionaries over. There are three or four families sitting here. When the missionaries show up, they want to have the missionaries in. And it, it's whoever can get to them first. That's great. But there are also people sitting here today who have never once had anybody else in this congregation or any of God's people into your home for a meal, for a cup of coffee, or for dessert, or to stay the night. And consequently, there are people sitting here next to you in these pews who have never been blessed by being invited over for a cup of coffee, or a dessert, or a meal, or to stay the night. So friends, I would say to you what Paul says to the Thessalonians. You really have no need that I would say anything to you about this because you're already practicing this and excelling at it, but I would just say and pray, do this. Excel at it all the more. It is an incredible grace. It is an incredible blessing to the person who practices hospitality and to the person who is the recipient of such gracious, loving, servant-minded hospitality. Do it all the more. That's the second blessing. Paul showed up in the city of Petili, and here was a group of believers. They found out he was in town. and was like, hey, hey, who's going to... They didn't have to put Paul up in a hotel. They just opened their homes to him and all of who were traveling with him, Luke and Aristarchus and Julius, and hosted the Apostle Paul. Would you be nervous, by the way, hosting the Apostle Paul for the evening? <laughs> I would. Most of the time, I enjoy when people come over, we have a little theological discussion, you know, talk about something biblically or doctrinally. If Paul came over, I wouldn't be opening my mouth about nothing. They'd be talking about the weather, woodworking, anything Paul was unfamiliar with. Wouldn't want to discuss anything with him. You'd find out he'd be writing a book to you later on or write a book about you later on. <laughs> 
But they didn't. They just opened up their hearts and their homes to the apostle and invited him in. And invited him in. That's friendly fellowship. Friendly fellowship. There's nothing like a meal enjoyed together with friends. That is just incredible, isn't it? If you've never done it, you don't know it. I don't expect you to understand how gracious that is. But do it. The third blessing that Paul received on this last leg of the journey is in verse 15. Or verse 14, sorry, before we move on to the third one, I want you to notice the phrase at the end of verse 14. It says, and thus we came to Rome. It's kind of a difficult phrase to translate from the Greek. It can mean and probably should be translated something like, and thus we started out for Rome. Luke is saying that after the seven days, that's how we came to Rome. That's how, Then when we left to Rome, that's the idea behind the end of verse 14. So the third blessing, not only safe sailing and not only a friendly fellowship, but third, a warm welcome. Look at verse 15. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, while Paul was staying for seven days at Petili, somebody somehow got word to Rome, because when Paul says when they, the brethren there, that is in Rome, heard about us, they came out to meet us even as far as the market of Appius and three inns. The market of Appius was 43 miles outside of the city of Rome on the Appian Way, which went from the main port of Petuli up to Rome. So as Paul's making his way, approaching Rome, he gets up to the market of Appius, which was sort of a stopping over place where people would stay the night, a little city, a little marketplace where people could pull in on the when night fell and stay the night there. And so Paul gets to the city of Appius, 43 miles from Rome, and there are Christians who have come from Rome down to the market of Appius to meet Paul with all of his traveling companions. And Paul says they came to Three Inns as well. Three Inns was another 10 miles toward Rome, only 33 miles outside of the city of Rome. So there was like these two waves of Christians who met Paul on the way. As he's traveling toward the city of Rome, he gets to the market of Appius, and here are some believers who are there. And they're looking for Paul and his traveling companions. Everybody shows up. Hey, it's Paul. And they go up and they shake hands. They express love. They express honor to him. They're excited to see him. They have traveled almost two full days out of the city of Rome to meet him. Not even halfway, but two days journey out. And they want to travel back with Paul. What a blessing that is to receive a warm welcome, isn't it? Now, why does Luke include a small little detail like that? He says, so some people came out to greet him halfway. Why that? Why that small detail? You know why? Because it meant a tremendous amount to the Apostle Paul. You look at the end of verse 15, and what does it say? When he saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Thanked God and took courage. He saw this as a blessing from God, that these Christians would come out of the city from, from Rome and meet him and travel 43 miles to walk back with him on foot. What a tremendous blessing that was to Paul. It just lifted his heart. That little tiny, that little tiny insignificant thing, he thanked God for that and took courage. What Christians came from the city of Rome? I don't know. If you go to the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, you're going to read through all of Paul's greeting of these different people that were in the city of Rome that he knew. Right? Priscilla and Aquila were there, and um, I don't know, they had weird names like that, but John, Sue, Mark, and all these other people who were there in the city of Rome. Paul knew them, and he lists over a dozen people in the city of Rome that he knew. I imagine that some of them came out. Probably some of the elders of the church came out and greeted him as well. There's two waves of Christians. And when Paul saw that, he got to the market of Appius, and here were these believers. He went ten miles further to three ends, and here were some more believers coming out to welcome him halfway. And it says he thanked God. Thank you, God, for these people. And can you imagine the conversation? Because Paul had written the book to the Romans three years before making this journey. So they had it. And he told them in the book of Romans, Pray for me that it may be found in the will of God for me to eventually visit you. So when they meet Paul on the road, what did they say? Hey, Paul, how was the trip? 
That's what we say to people after they travel, right? How was the trip? Well, a little turbulence, but other than that, it was all right, right? Well, we've been praying for three years for safe travel for you. Did you have safety? Safety of a sort, yeah, we made it all the way through, but God answered that prayer. Well, we've also been praying that along the way you would have opportunity to preach the gospel to some of the people that you would encounter. Anybody of significance that you've been able to present Christ to? Well, there was Lysias, the commander of the Roman forces in Jerusalem, the highest ranking official. And then there was, of course, Felix, the governor of the region. And two years later, Festus, the governor of the region. And then there was King Agrippa. And now Julius, Nero's bodyguard and the leader of the island of Malta. So yeah, thanks for praying. Thanks for praying for me. Thanks for praying that I would come. Thanks for praying for safe travel. They came out and they warmly welcomed Paul. It says that he took courage, or he was encouraged. Some translations say he was encouraged. Why was Paul encouraged? That's a curious little thing to me. Why did he take courage? Was he a little apprehensive about coming to Rome? Was he nervous? Was he scared? Fear and trepidation coming to Rome? Wouldn't he be excited? This is something he had longed to have happen. This was something he had prayed for. This was something he was hoping for. But as he approaches Rome and he gets within 50 miles, he meets a band of believers and he, thank God, he's, he's encouraged. His spirits are lifted a little bit. What's going on with Paul? You know, friends, I don't know if Paul was nervous about going into Rome or not. I can't say that for sure. But I do know that he had every reason to be nervous going into the city of Rome. And you know why? He had never been to the city of Rome. He had never preached in the city of Rome. He had never taught in the city of Rome. He did not found the church at the city of Rome. Somebody else had. And three years prior to this, he had written them an epistle telling them what to believe on all of these very difficult subjects like election and predestination and sanctification and the glory of Israel and the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and the nature of the church and walking in holiness and putting to death the members of your flesh and what the gospel is and that whole explanation of the depravity of man and all of the conduct and how they should live as a result of that. And so here's the question. As I'm traveling with Paul in my mind and we are approaching the city of Rome, knowing all of that context, the questions that would come to my mind are this. Would they recognize Paul's apostolic authority in the city of Rome? Right? He hadn't founded that church, but he had the audacity to write them a letter telling them what to believe and how to live. So when he got to Rome, would they recognize his apostolic authority or would they consider him an intruder? Would he find that the Christians there had received his letter and then thought in their minds, who does this guy think he is? He's not an elder in our church. He's not a deacon in our church. He's not a teacher in our church. He calls himself an apostle. Who does he think he is writing to us and telling us as an apostle what to believe and how to act? Would they love him? Would they welcome him? Would they encourage him? Would they support him? Would they defend him? Would they stand up for him? He doesn't know that. He doesn't know most of the people in the city room. He has a dozen, maybe two dozen people in Rome that he knows that he had sent greetings to, but most of the church he doesn't know. Probably doesn't know most of the elders in that church. He's unfamiliar with the city. He has no idea what to expect coming into this. Would they welcome him warmly or would they keep him at arm's distance? Had word gone ahead of Paul to the Christians in Rome and were they already prejudiced against him? You remember that's what happened in the city of Jerusalem. Paul got back from his third missionary journey. He showed up in the city of Jerusalem and the elders came to him and the other apostles in the city of Jerusalem. And what did they say to Paul? They said all of the Jews, thousands of them in the city of Jerusalem, even the Christians, the brethren, 
they hear from other people how you go out into all the cities of the Gentiles and that you're teaching Jews to forsake Moses and not to circumcise their children. Paul, the Christians in Jerusalem have turned against you because they've listened to the rumors about you from outside the city. So here's the question. Would he get to Rome and find that the same thing had happened in Rome? That people had come to Rome with all of these twisted and distorted stories about Paul? Would they believe these fantastic things about him preaching against the law of Moses and teaching Jews not to circumcise their children? Would he have to win over the Christians before he could have a hearing in the city of Rome? He doesn't know what to expect. I'll tell you what, if he wasn't nervous, he had every reason to be. I would have been trembling in my boots at the prospect of walking into that city. Because everywhere that Paul went, remember this, everywhere that Paul had gone, for about the last 10, 15 years, he had been a lightning rod for hostility and conflict with the Jews. There are a lot of Jews in the city of Rome. So when Paul showed up, showed up, would he find himself a divisive force in the church and in the city? And would he find the Jews already ready there to try and take his life and to plot against him and already have their minds poisoned against him and his message? Well, when he gets to the market of Appius, sees these Christians who open him, open arm embrace and welcome him and travel two days just to greet him early, have a chance to travel back with him. It's no wonder that he thanked God and took courage. He was encouraged. Why? I think he was a little uncertain about what to expect in the city of Rome. He had no idea. A warm welcome. That's the third blessing that Paul received. Now, for those of you who are, who are encouragers, I just want to encourage you encouragers with this. You, you never know what little tiny thing like a note or a card or something like that means to somebody on the other end. You may find that it's just this little small demonstration of whatever it is that you do to encourage somebody else is actually met on the other side of that encouragement by somebody who's thanking God and taking courage and being encouraged by what you've done. That's what these Christians did. A warm welcome. Safe sailing, friendly fellowship, a warm welcome. The fourth blessing that Paul received in verse 16 is a comfortable confinement. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. See, here's one of the other unknowns as he's approaching the city of Rome. What's my imprisonment going to look like once I get to the imperial city? Right? Felix had treated him with deference, stayed in the governor's mansion, Herod's Praetorium, treated him with comfort, used to go in and visit Paul all the time, called him out to talk with Drusilla, his wife, conversed with Paul, allowed his friends to freely come and visit him and minister to him. Felix did the same thing. Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea was anything but difficult, anything but onerous at all. He had the, he had all of the comforts and all of the freedom because everybody knew he was an innocent man. And Agrippa's treatment of Paul was with respect and deference. Julius allowed him to go into the city at different ports and be ministered to by his brethren. He had freedom on board the ship, freedom at the island of Malta. But once he got to Rome, what would his imprisonment be like? He would have to actually stand before Nero or one of Nero's representatives and have them look at his case and say, okay, how are we going to treat this guy? Well, it turns out that he was treated really well. He was allowed to stay by himself. He wasn't put in the prison. Look at verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Now, reading those verses does not constitute coming to the end of the book of Acts. All right, so we'll get there, but we're not going to skip all the stuff in the middle. But I just want you to see that for two full years, he had his own rented quarters. He rented an apartment and he was allowed to stay there with a guard and people came to him freely coming, freely going. He was completely unhindered in anything that he wanted. He just, he kind of had the little, the little ankle bracelet thing that's picked up by the satellite. That was it. He was just, he had a guard that had to be with him all the time. But other than that, he had complete freedom to go anywhere that he wanted. That's a comfortable confinement. What do you think contributed to Nero or Nero's representative saying, you know what, 
Let him rent the quarters. Don't put him in the prison with the rest of the guys. I think there was three things. Number one, he was a Roman citizen, so that gave him a markup right away. Number two, he had a case history which had traveled with Paul. You see, when Julius delivered Paul to Nero, he would have handed to Nero also all of the case history, all of the written documentation, all of the written testimony. The Romans were freaks about this. They were totally meticulous. Everything was written down, transcribed. All of it was kept. Accurate records were kept of everything. He would have handed that to Nero, to Nero's representative, and he would have flipped through it, and he would have said, well, here we have a letter from the commander in Jerusalem saying he's innocent. Here we have Felix basically declaring his innocence by not punishing him. Here we have Festus saying, look, the man is innocent, he's deserved nothing worthy of death. And then here we have Agrippa who's saying, look, the man is innocent, he's done nothing worthy of death. That's quite a case history, isn't it? The only reason he was in front of them was because of a technicality. He had appealed to Caesar. But other than that, he's an innocent man, and all the record shows he's an innocent man. And he's not a flight risk. The third thing that probably played into that was Julius's testimony. He could have stood before Nero because he was Nero's part of Nero's bodyguard, part of the Augustan cohort. He could have stood before Nero or Nero's representative and said, look, since I picked this guy up in Caesarea, I have no problems with him. I allowed him to go in at Sidon and receive ministry from friends. He had freedom on board the ship. He protected the crew. He protected the passengers. He fed them. He encouraged them. He blessed them. He helped us get off the ship on board the island. Once we got on board the island, I gave him freedom. He was healing people. He was there. He didn't try and escape once during the whole time I had him. And then we brought him all the way here. This guy's been a perfect prisoner. Julius could testify to that. When all of that came out, at sort of the pretrial hearing, he said, look, let, get, him, get him his own rented quarters. It's a joke. Don't put him in confinement with the rest of the prisoners. Comfortable confinement. What a blessing that was to Paul. Everything's going right for him from 11 through 16. You see that? Everything's going right for him. This is wonderful blessing. I want you to focus on verse 16 for a second. We're going to close with this. I want you to see something that is of significance because I don't want you to lose or miss the import of verse 16. I have underlined and I have highlighted and I have starred and I have boxed and I have done everything in my Bible to draw attention to the first four words of verse 16. When we entered Rome. When we entered Rome. Now friends, I cannot possibly overstate the significance of that verse. Beginning in Jerusalem, this little tiny church, 120 people waiting for prayer, ballooning to 3,000, and then 5,000, and then an innumerable host. And as we've read through the book of Acts, we have watched how the gospel has gone from Jerusalem out in ever-widening circles like a stone that is thrown into a still pond. And the circles go outward from the city of Jerusalem from the day of Pentecost onward. And slowly it has been progressing as Paul has gone farther and farther and farther west with the gospel. Until now, finally we get to verse 16. And he's where? He's in the city of Rome. Since we started the book of Acts, we've been waiting to get to verse 16. And he said, no, Jim, since we started the book of Acts, I've been waiting to get to verse 31, the end of the book. We're going to get there. But since the thematically, since we started the book of Acts, we have been waiting for Rome. Everything has been building for Rome. And so when you read verse 16, you let out this collective sigh. One, two, three. That was a pathetic collective sigh. I'm not going to give you another chance to do it because the moment's lost. You let out this collective sigh. Finally, Rome. He's at the heart of the commercial empire. He's at the heart of political influence. He's at the heart of trade. Every road leads to what? Rome. Every road leads to Rome. And here's Paul. He's now going to plant Christianity solidly right in the heart of the Roman Empire. And he has been longing and driving and desiring to do this for years. 
I cannot even imagine how long it would have taken the gospel to get to Rome and established and firmly planted and everywhere in between had it not been for Saul of Tarsus, had it not been for the Apostle Paul. This guy is a relentless bulldog. And now his, since he became a believer, sort of his life's passion, his life's drive, his desire has been to get to Rome. So it's significant to Paul for two reasons, and let me give them to you. First of all, because it fulfilled a personal desire that he had. It fulfilled a personal desire. Now, my guess is that probably from where you're at in your Bible, you can at least see the beginning of the book of Romans. Can you see it? Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Look what he writes to the church at Rome. Isn't it great how our Bible's arranged? Paul gets to Rome at the end of Acts. You keep reading, and here's the letter that he wrote three years earlier. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness Look at this. As to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you as also even among the rest of the Gentiles. Isn't that phenomenal? What was Paul's personal desire? You get to the end of the book of Romans, chapter 15, and guess what you find? He says, look, I'm planning on going through the regions of Achaia and Macedonia. I'm going to collect an offering and deliver those to the church at Jerusalem. Once I'm in the church at Jerusalem, I'm heading off to Rome. I'm going to stop by. I'm going to see you guys for a little bit. And then I'm heading off to Spain. I'm going as far west as the Roman Empire would go. I'm going to go all the way to the ocean. With the gospel. That was his desire. Big plans, isn't it? That was his desire. This was a personal desire. Now, it didn't happen as, the, as Paul had wanted. Paul wanted to go as a free man. Instead, he's going as a prisoner of Christ. Paul wanted to stop in Rome just briefly and then bounce from Rome off into Spain on another missionary journey using Rome as sort of a base of headquarters. Paul wasn't able to do that. That desire was never fulfilled. But the Lord did bring Paul through and did bring him to Rome and did grant his personal desire. What a blessing it is when we as God's people desire something that's within the will of God and we pray for that thing and then He grants that thing to us because it's according to His will and then we see our desires, our personal desires fulfilled. We see the desires of our heart which God has planted there. He has placed them there. We pray for them. We have planned for them and then He grants them and He sees them fulfilled. What a blessing that is. It was the fulfillment of a personal desire. Second thing, it was significant to Paul because it was the fulfillment of a divine promise. A divine promise. Back in chapter 23, when Paul's arrested in Jerusalem, while he's in the barracks in the temple, he's in the barracks, and, and meanwhile, people outside, 40 of them, are plotting to take his life, saying, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we've killed that guy. Jesus is appearing to Paul in the barracks, and he says to Paul, just as you've testified for me at Jerusalem, you're going to testify for me at Rome. Paul, I'm sending you to Rome. It was back in chapter 19 that Paul first said, I must see Rome. That was the personal desire. Acts 23, the Lord confirms it and says, Paul, you've testified to Jerusalem. I'm sending you to Rome. On board the ship, during the middle of the storm, the angel appeared to Paul and said, Paul, don't fear. You're going to stand before Caesar. The Lord's taking you to Rome. That was the, that was the divine promise. Verse 16, as we read, and as we entered Rome, that reminds us that our God is a promise-keeping God. Friends, there was no snake in the world, no storm in the world, no shipwreck in the world that could keep Paul out of Rome. Doesn't matter how many Jews plotted to take his life, 
doesn't matter how long Felix wanted to thwart justice and delay justice and not give Paul a hearing. It doesn't matter what Festus wanted to do in throwing him under the bus and delivering him to the Jews for political expediency. It didn't matter what Agrippa said. The Lord had said, I'm going to send you to Rome. I'm taking you to Rome. That's my word. And there was nothing that could happen. Absolutely nothing that could happen that could keep Paul out of Rome. Nothing. George Whitfield once said, listen to this, until the Lord takes me home, I'm invincible. I love that. Until the Lord takes me home, I am invincible. Because I'm going to die right on time, not a day before, not a day after. God's going to call my number, and that's it. But until that time, I'm invincible. Friends, it didn't matter what Satan threw in the way of the Apostle Paul. God brought him to Rome. And then we entered Rome. Our God's will is perfect. He always keeps His word to us. And until He takes us home, we're invincible. Can't die before our time. So we just keep trusting in Him, serving Him, and walking toward our own personal Rome. Because He brings it to pass. Whatever His word is concerning us, whatever He's promised us in His word, He'll always fulfill His word and His will is absolutely perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a promise-keeping God. You've made a covenant with us. You have promised us salvation. You have promised us forgiveness of sins. You have promised us Your grace, Your comfort, Your presence. And Your goodness continually showers over us. We thank You, God, that You plant in our hearts desires which honor and glorify You. And we pray that in bringing those to pass, that You would glorify Yourself in granting us those things which honor You. Our desire is for Your glory. And we pray that You would give us joy and satisfaction in that glory and satisfaction in You to love You, to honor You, and to continually look to You, a God whose will is perfect and whose word is sure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.